Now, I don't know if you're into murder mysteries. I know some people up here this week having done a sort of murder mystery weekend. I didn't know that when I was planning the, uh, the talk this week. But uh, I was brought up with murder mysteries, you know, Poirot and Columbo and all those different ones. Uh, and my boys are getting into it as well. They're really into Scooby-Doo uh, at the moment, which really is that same sort of idea. The idea with Scooby-Doo, as with most whodunits, is that through the episode there were sort of clues given throughout, anticipating the great reveal at the end, where it turns out that the ghost or monster was Old Man Withers from the abandoned theme park. That's always the way it works, isn't it, in Scooby-Doo. But uh, all the way uh, through this, uh, this uh, sermon, and all the way through this uh, chapter of the Bible... Sorry, I'm dealing with a new device, my notes just went wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, some sermons work like Scooby-Doo. Uh, some sermons, some of mine work like Scooby-Doo, in that you sort of you, you work through a passage and you get clues all the way through, don't you? Like, oh, this could be someone, this could be someone. And then there's the big reveal at the end that it turns out all the way through you were talking about Jesus. That's the way it works often, isn't it, with the Psalms. Well, this morning I didn't want to give us a Scooby-Doo sermon. Uh, so I'm going to tell you right from the outset that Psalm 72 that we're looking at finds its ultimate fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. It's called the Royal Psalm, and it's quite blatantly about Jesus, the King of the Universe. That's not to say that it didn't have an original meaning. We're told in verse 0, if you like, the title, which is there in the original, that the psalm was by Solomon, or possibly about Solomon. It is speaking about the kings of Israel, of God's people, but none of the 20 or so kings that you get in the Bible of God's people get anywhere close, really, to the description that we have here. That said, it's worded as a prayer that this would be true of the king. But if this is a prayer, then Jesus is the answer to this prayer. So we're going to start off by unmasking Jesus to start with. Our mystery king is unmasked. It's the Lord Jesus. And that means that this psalm is telling us about him. So all the way through this morning, we're going to be asking the question, what does this tell us about Jesus, and what does it mean to follow a king like that? Let's see. Well, firstly, we see the character of his reign. Part one, firm and fair. Have a look with me again at verses one to six. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, and the hills in, in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like grass, sorry, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, oh, sorry, stop there, uh, showers that water the earth. The psalmist prays that the king would judge his people with righteousness. Fair rule is something that's quite rare if you think about it through history. We've all known countries where justice depends on who you know rather than what you've done. The king in the old world was the head of the justice system. He was the final court, if you like, in most cases. You see that with Solomon, don't you? He's brought two women who both claim that a child uh, was born to them. It's up to the king, actually, to sort those things out. It was up to Solomon to make the final judgment of what to do, and he passes the test, doesn't he, with flying colours. The king, here, though, will be concerned, not for his cronies, 
but for the poor and needy. It says that he'll set himself up against the oppressor, those who would exploit the poor and vulnerable. He will crush them, literally break them, so that they will fear him throughout all generations. As long as the sun and the moon endure, in other words, forever. So all the way through asking, what does it mean to, to follow a king like this? Well, it means that we'll be involved with... Sorry. <laughs> Can't trust technology, can I? Do you know what? I was so worried this was going to happen. I printed it off this week, so I'm going to go onto my print. I'm going to go proper low tech this morning. Here we go. Right. The low tech version, okay? So, his judgment uh, is something that we, we look at, isn't it? It's something that we see in this psalm. And here on his, on his enemies, on the oppressors, his judgment will be so swift and complete that those who experience it will never stop fearing the Lord. Their fear of him will endure as long as his reign endures. And we'll see how long that is in a few moments' time. His concern for the weak leads him to the judgment of the wicked. That's what we see here. His concern for the weak leads him to the judgment of the wicked. The axe must fall, so to speak. Only then will there be peace. That's the word the psalmist used there in verse 3 where it says prosperity. Really it's the word peace, shalom. Peace for the people. Now it does have the idea of a wholeness and completeness. But that will only happen once justice is done. So do we think of our Lord Jesus as this firm and fair king? You see, Jesus' compassion and care are not the opposites to his justice and fairness. It's not like they're in competition. These things are friends, not enemies. It's because of his great love that he must judge. You see, we see injustices in the world, don't we? When we see false imprisonments, when we see kangaroo courts by insecure dictators, when we see families torn apart by authorities on a whim. Who can look at things like that and not be moved in their guts? There's something about it, this injustice. That could be me, that could be my family. Think about uh, Nazanin uh, Zagre Ratcliffe being held in Iran. Unable to see her family because the Iranian government is demanding money from the UK government to free her. Or what about Asia Bibi who spent eight years of her life on death row in Pakistan for blasphemy because she was a Christian? How is that justice? How is that fair rule? Should no one be held accountable for that? Where is the love and compassion? But where is the justice as well? They're not opposites. Love will act by bringing justice. And Christ will act by bringing justice. We're told in Acts that Jesus has been appointed judge of the world. And in John's Gospel we're told that um, the Son has been given all judgment by the Father. See, in the old world, the king was that chief judge. And Jesus, as king, will judge with righteousness and justice. God's righteousness and justice. He will judge righteously and fairly. Is that how we think about the Lord Jesus as a right and fair judge? Now, it's worth mentioning, though, at this point, that the same love and righteousness that takes him to the courtroom also took him to the cross. 
Again, it was not that the cross was love winning over justice. Actually, the cross shows us both. Because of his justice, it was not enough just to sweep our sins under the carpet and ignore them. But because of his love, he took the penalty himself. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah wrote, he was crushed for our iniquities. That's the same word in our passage of what uh, the king would do to the oppressors. So we can either be crushed by him, or let him be crushed for us. Justice demands that a penalty is paid, but this king is willing to take the penalty for us. So what does it mean to follow such a just and righteous king? Well, it means that we will be characterised by justice and righteousness. We will care about the plight of the oppressed and the needy. We will not be indifferent to injustice. Now, that's not being woke. That's being compassionate, isn't it? We might differ on what action we should take with different political opinions and things, but at the very least, we will care. As ambassadors of our righteous king, we will care about righteousness. We will seek to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord our God. And we will accept the righteousness that he offers freely to those who put their trust in him. A righteousness that comes by faith. Have you accepted that righteousness that Jesus gives? Or are you setting yourself up as a rival king? Who's trying to take that righteousness yourself, make it yourself. Accept the righteousness he offers. The second thing that we see is the extent of his reign. All time and all places. Have a look at verses 7 to 10. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. The psalmist calls for his reign to continue as long as the moon. Earlier it was as long as the sun endures. Now I looked this up this week, scientists will tell you that the sun uh, has enough fuel for the next five billion years. Now obviously this rule isn't supposed to be literally that long. It's supposed to be longer than that. Christ's reign will be longer than the sun, longer than five billion years. Whether he'll give us a new one or he'll give the old one a refit, I don't know. But don't think that that will stop Christ's reign when the sun runs out of helium and hydrogen. It will go on and on and on and on and on and on. The Duracell bunny has nothing on Christ. The cosmos has nothing on Christ. He was there before it, and he will outlast it if he doesn't renew it. His reign has a longer lifespan than the universe, if you like, left to itself. And it's not just that his reign is long, it's as wide as the universe. It's global. From sea to sea, it says. From the river, presumably the river Euphrates in the north, to the ends of the earth. Now you might have expected it to say, from the river to the river. You know, that's the way it goes, isn't it? But no, from the river to the ends of the earth. And if we haven't got the picture, he starts to share some of the places. The desert to the southeast and its warring tribes will bow so low that they'll be licking the dust, subdued like a serpent to crawl on its belly. 
Tarshish and its kings to the west will be under his control. Tarshish, in the mind of the Israelites, was about as far west as you could get. It's possibly Spain where Jonah tries to flee to, to be away from God. But this king will have dominion even there. The rulers of Sheba and Seba to the south, possibly Ethiopia area, will bring gifts. Now, of course, Solomon knew this firsthand, didn't he? Because he had the queen of Sheba come and visit him. But all four points of the compass will be his. From east to west, from pole to pole, his reign shall know no end, temporally or spatially. All is his. There is nowhere, according to this psalm, that he is not king of. And this helps us understand, doesn't it, that the Messiah that the Jews were looking forward to was not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the cosmos, king of the world. His rule was to be for all places, for all time. And that is what we meet in Christ. And let's not limit Christ to being king of some and not of others. We sometimes speak, Jesus is my king. And that's right, isn't it? We speak of him personally. But all people owe him their loyalty and obedience and faith. Everybody. Even if they don't acknowledge his rule, he's still their king. So what does it mean to follow such a king? Well, surely we'll want to take news of his rule to the ends of the earth. As such, our mission to the ends of the earth is is motivated by love for our fellow human beings, yes. But it's also motivated by our desire for Christ's glory. We want to see his global rule acknowledged globally, don't we? From the back streets of Burley and Wharfdale to the jungles of Borneo. We want it everywhere, don't we? We want to see his name and his fame spread from shore to shore. Now we talk about evangelism and it's right that we do. But 90% of evangelism in some senses is enthusiasm, isn't it? If we love this king, we'll want others to know him, to honour him, to love him as we do. I'm quite happy to, to talk often about the latest book that I've read or the latest film. I'll get very enthusiastic about it. The latest Netflix series that you've got to try out. But when was the last time I talked so enthusiastically about Jesus? About him? Peter and John, the apostles in the New Testament, told the authorities, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have an awesome king. And if we're his followers, we'll want to tell everyone to know him and acknowledge his rightful rule over their lives. It also means that we need to be enthusiastic about global missions. We don't need to be embarrassed about missionaries. I was chatting to somebody in a cafe a few weeks ago and they they said the idea of missionaries made them feel sick. This is a non-Christian. So they're all coming with their beliefs. But they are ambassadors for the gospel, aren't they? In other lands. Spreading the good news of Jesus, the King, to places that we can't. Do we pray for our missionaries? Either the ones we know personally or the ones that we know as a church. The Delahoyes, the Mats in Indonesia. We've been getting updates from them at Prayer and Pizza. Do you know what they're doing at the moment? How they're doing? So it means that if we follow him, we'll care about mission, not just at home, but abroad. His reign is for all time and for all places. The third thing we see, the character of his reign, part two, caring and compassionate. Let me read to you verse 11. 
May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 11 sums up what we've just seen. All nations will serve him. All kings will bow down before him. The word that is usually translated for bow down is usually translated worship. So just a few psalms on, Psalm 86 verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O God, and shall glorify your name. Same word. But because this was firstly written to human kings, it makes sense, doesn't it? They've translated it bow down. But when applied to Christ, it could take on that meaning worship. Indeed, some see this actually as a prophecy of the kings coming, the Magi, uh, the kings from the east who worship Jesus near the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. But why is this king to be worshipped by all nations and all kings? Well, look at what this king is like. Have a look at 12 and 13. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. This king is a rescuer. He delivers the poor. He saves the lives of the needy. He redeems their lives. He's a rescuer of the oppressed, the poor, the needy and the weak. And isn't that the sort of king that we want? Isn't that a good thing? Who cares for those who have no one to care for them? Who has no regard for pomp or position, but cares for the lowliest in society? We all want rulers like this, don't we? We know that it's right for a ruler to speak this way, isn't it, and do these things. That's why every party, uh, uh, every political party, the politicians always appeal to this, don't they? No party says, we will protect the rich and the powerful. This doesn't come down very well, does it? It's always the weak and the, the needy, the poor. Whatever they actually do in government, that's what the language that they speak. But unlike politicians who so often say one thing and do another, this king actually does what he says. He rescues the poor and oppressed. He redeems them. And I think we can understand this in two ways. One in the literal sense. Jesus did care for the needy and the weak. He healed the sick. He had compassion on the crowd. He associated with the outcasts and the downtrodden. Their blood was precious in his sight. Think about the woman caught in adultery that Jesus uh, stops the execution of. He showed care and compassion, the like of which this world has never seen. But also in the New Testament, believers are pictured as weak and needy, blind and in need of rescue. And of course, Jesus is our rescuer. He's our rescuing king, the deliverer. And our blood is precious in his sight. So precious that he shed his own blood to rescue us as he died on the cross in our place. So what does it mean to follow such a king? Well, first and foremost, it means that we need to accept his rescue. If he came as a rescuer, then what an insult to not be rescued by him, to refuse. The problem is, of course, that accepting as rescuer means that we need to accept the Bible's picture of why we need rescuing that we're unable to rescue ourselves. And that goes very counter to the spirit of our age, doesn't it? I was reading a couple of days ago of a school in the UK that was teaching its children uh, the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, you know, but they changed the words slightly, and it became, We've Got the Whole World in Our Hands. We like to think, don't we, that we can do it ourselves, that we can rescue ourselves. But actually, God sent a rescuer 
because we need rescuing. The Bible's picture is that we are blind, empty-handed, dead even, in our sins and transgressions. We need spiritual resurrection, is what the Bible says. And we can't do that ourselves. We can't bring ourselves to life. We need Jesus to do that. And he did it when he died and rose again. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, now brings us new life as we put our trust in him. That's the first thing we need to do, accept his rescue. Second, though, we'll share his compassion for others. We too will hate violence and oppression. We will care for the poor and needy. We will care about those who've never heard the gospel. As ambassadors of Christ who cares, we will care. And that's not social action, that's Christ-likeness, isn't it? As we do those things, as we help the poor and needy. Do we know the issues that are involved in doing that? Do we seek to alleviate poverty and suffering as Christians? Again, we might disagree on how we do those things, but at least we can agree that as Christians we can be seeking to help. His reign is caring and compassionate, so we too should be caring and compassionate. Finally then, what are the effects of his reign? Abundant blessing. Have a look at 15 to 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of rain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people call him blessed and all nations be blessed in, uh, sorry, or may people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. The last section speaks of the amazing blessings that come from this king. Riches and abundance, trees blossoming, fruit multiplying, people multiplying like blossom or like grass. People will bless him and people will be blessed in him in verse 17. It's harking back to the promises that God made to Abraham. So in Genesis 12 verses 2 and 3, I think it's on the back of your notice sheets. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise to Abraham, but now that promise comes to the promised king. An individual who will bring blessings to the nations. Whose name is great and shall endure forever. Whose fame will as long as, endure as long as there's a sun in the sky. The Lord Jesus is the one in whom all nations are blessed. The seed of Abraham, the son of David, the one greater than Solomon. Is it any wonder that the the compiler of the Psalms breaks out in spontaneous praise? Look at verse 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. All the way through the psalm, and indeed all the way through the whole book of Psalms, this book, book from Psalm 42 to 72, we've seen wonderful pictures of the glories of God. We've seen the wonderful works that he's accomplished through David to bring these wonderful pictures in history. We've seen how God has stood out, uh, or stood by his people, sorry, in the midst of trouble and trial. 
how he's rescued his people out of problems and trouble again and again. He prays that the whole earth be filled with the glory of that wondrous rescuing king who brings blessing to all peoples. Well, what would it look like to follow such a king? Well, we too will praise his name, won't we? We'll praise the name of the Lord our God. We too will call him blessed and pray that his glory might fill the earth like the compiler of the Psalms does. We'll be lost in wonder. David's prayers may be ended, as it tells you in verse 20, but we see the answers to these prayers in Christ. David's prayers and praise may be over, but our prayers and praise carry on. We continue to praise our great and glorious king, who alone does wondrous things. Now David might not have known where all this this section was heading, nor the other psalmists here, nor the compiler of the psalms even. But now here at the end of history, the mask has come off. His identity is revealed. We know the one whom we are praising, the Lord Jesus. Not the villain, but the hero of history. The great king who yet suffered but still trusted in his father. Not old man with us from the abandoned theme park, but Christ. The mystery hidden for ages, yet not revealed, uh, sorry, now revealed for all time. The psalm of 72, psalm, the royal psalm, well, the king is Jesus. So let's honour and worship him as his faithful servants. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for all the ways that he fulfills this psalm. Father, thank you that he is the answer to this prayer. Father, we pray that you'd help us to take his fame and his name globally. Father, we pray for our missions here and our missions abroad. And Father, we pray that our character would reflect his character and his justice and his compassion too. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.